Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may help us to understand this very difficult topic of joy in the Christian life. And especially for those of us who may struggle with joy or have many questions, we pray that through your word and through your Holy Spirit working in our hearts, we may come to a better understanding of it. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, many uh, times I've come across Christians who have insisted that as a Christian we must always be happy. Because after all, they say the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. So as a Christian, I must always be happy. Because now I have a Spirit-filled life, I should be happy and I will be happy. And if I'm not happy, I'm disobeying God. At the same time, I've also come across uh, Christians who have become very serious about uh, the Christian life. They become very somber, solemn. And uh, if uh, you come across these Christians, it's almost as if being joyful or rejoicing, having fun, is just not acceptable Christian behavior. Now perhaps you don't fall within the, those two camps but as you think of the topic of joy in the Christian life, you wonder why as a Christian you don't enjoy the Christian life more. Why don't you rejoice? Why is there a lack of joy in your life? Or maybe times are tough for you at the moment. Maybe there is a particular suffering or obstacle or hardship that you're going through and you ask yourself, how do I find joy within these circumstances. Uh, how is it, as a Christian, I need to respond to these circumstances differently than a non-Christian? Well, today's sermon strives to answer some of these questions, and I'm going through some of the points fairly quickly, so if you have any questions, please feel free to come and speak to me later. But the first thing I want to say, if you can follow in the outline, and the outline will be quite important for you to follow the sermon, is that being a Christian should be a joyful experience. We should rejoice and have joy as a Christian. And uh, it is not for us to be miserable. God does not intend for us to be miserable as Christians. Now, I think that as evangelical Christians, there is a temptation for us to overreact against the feeling focus and the emotionalism of charismatic Christians. But I think that we can go too far overboard and have a feelingless, emotionless, heartless Christianity. Well, I think that the Bible actually says that there is a place for joy, the emotion of joy in the Christian life. So if you look up in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told a parable to describe the kingdom of heaven. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And again, when the angels came before the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, they described what the coming of Jesus would mean. And, he, and the angels said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So as we look at these two passages, one a parable of Jesus, the other one the angelic announcement, we'll see that Actually, it doesn't have to talk about emotions, it doesn't have to talk about joy, but yet it describes the reception of the kingdom of heaven 
the coming of Jesus in emotional terms, in joy, great joy, it tells us. And I think that as we come to the message of Jesus, if you can remember when you first became a Christian, for some of you, it was a time of joy. But over time, sometimes that joy is replaced by drudgery and dread. And I remember a relative of mine who was a great supporter of the EPL. Every time I go to his house, especially if it was on Saturday night, uh, for those of you who watch EPL, you know Saturday night is a very important night because that's when all the games are played. He'll be full of excitement. Uh, during dinner time, you know, he couldn't wait till the games start at 9.30 or 10.30 or whatever so that he could watch his favorite team. And if they won, he would be, he would be over the moon for a week. And it's so strange because I sometimes compare the passion of this relative to the opposite of so many Christians that I meet. Where being a Christian doesn't seem to be something which fills us with passion or joy or emotion, but it seems like almost a chore or a burden that we have to bear. So I was reading this book uh, in preparation for this sermon, and it was an excellent book, and I can lend it to you if you wish to borrow it. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a very famous and prominent preacher many years ago, was saying that one of the reasons in his observation why non-Christians find Christianity unattractive was because he observed that many Christians had no joy in their Christian life. In fact, they were the very opposite. They seemed to be very miserable. And because of their lack of joy, it didn't make Christianity seem very attractive at all. And he says that this is a real mistake because surely as Christians, we have so much more to be joyful about than someone who follows an EPL football team. If you think about us as Christians and think about who we were before we came to Christ, where we were going to hell, we were facing the full force of God's wrath and judgment, we were suffering for eternity. But in Christ, we have now received full pardon of God. Jesus has died for us. We now have eternal life in heaven. How can that compare to a football team? Surely the splendor of heaven is incomparable compared to football team, right? Or even winning the EPL. Surely the eternity that we have in heaven is so much more than a season of football or the glory of God to 22 men chasing a football. But if we have no joy in our life, it must be because we have failed to grasp the splendor the glory and the greatness of who we are and what awaits us. You see, and I think this is very unbiblical because the Bible clearly says in the two passages that we read that the reception of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we have in the kingdom of heaven, should be received with joy. So I wonder if you could just spend a moment as an exercise thinking about yourself and measuring what is your joy of being a Christian and being in Christ and the future of heaven, if you could measure it between a scale of 1 to 10, what would it be? How joyful are you in being a Christian? And if you find yourself having a low score, is it because you your level of joy is proportional to how lowly you rate the splendor, glory and majesty of the kingdom of heaven and of Jesus?
Because I think the higher that you rate the splendor and the glory and majesty of the kingdom of heaven, of our forgiveness in Jesus Christ, of the grace of God, then the higher will be your joy. So I think that's the first thing that we really need to understand, that as Christians, God does not intend for us to be miserable. He intends for us to be joyful because of what we've received in Jesus Christ and the future before us in the kingdom of heaven. And it's only because we have failed to appreciate what we have received that we do not have that joy within us. The second thing that I've noted is that often we are miserable because we fail to understand that our salvation is from grace alone. So the other day, I think it was just last week, I was driving my car and I got to my destination and I was listening to Channel News Asia and this man was telling his story and it was such a fascinating story that when I parked my car, I didn't turn off the engine and I was listening to it for another five minutes. And this man apparently had uh, recovered from cancer and he had written a book, but this wasn't what I was really interested in when he was talking. But he was telling a story about how his whole life he was plagued with a guilty conscience. Apparently, he had promised to look after his mother when she got old. But he felt that he did not keep his promise to her adequately. And uh, he felt that for the last, in the, in the newspaper, uh, sorry, in the, in the radio show, he was saying how for many years he carried this guilt on his shoulders because he felt that he didn't keep his promise to his mother. And he said that the only time that he felt the weight lift from his shoulder was when he volunteered to help in an old folks' home. And there, the old folks' home, when he was helping other old people, he felt this weight lift from his shoulder. Well, as I was listening to his, uh, his recounting, I thought, you know, for many Christians, we are like this man. I've met many Christians who have this weight on their shoulder of things that they should have done or they shouldn't have done or they could have done better but they didn't do as well as they felt that they should have done. And frankly, it makes them really miserable Christians. And part of the problem is because I think that they have forgotten that their salvation is by grace alone. That God forgives and that they have failed to come to the promises of God and to receive the promises of God for forgiveness. So the whole of their Christian life is like carrying around this weight of failed expectations, failed promises of sins that they, that they felt that they have done to various people in their life, which they can never seemingly overcome no matter what they do. But they are living their lives not as Christians, but as moralists. See, God says very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, our salvation, if you can see from this very, very dense passage, it's all about grace, it is by mercy, it is by kindness, it is a gift of God. But the problem is that for many Christians, we feel that we are saved by grace, and then after I come to believe, then I somehow am saved by the things that I do. Right, so they've mixed up justification and sanctification. Right, so justification is the, uh, the theological word for how we are declared right in the sight of God because Jesus Christ has paid for my sins. Sanctification is the process by which I continually live more and more like God wants me to live. But many Christians mistake justification for sanctification. They think that after I become a Christian, well, sanctification goes away and I save myself by the things that I do. But that's wrong. You see, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that sanctification doesn't replace justification. Sanctification flows out of justification. I'm forever justified before God by God's grace. Even though I've been a Christian 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I'm still justified by grace and not by the things that I do. Jesus said the same thing. right? Jesus says that he died on the cross for our sins. Not just when we first came to believe, but all along through the process of our Christian life. So what that means is that as Christians, we can be joyful because even though we sin, we know that we have a Savior who has paid for our sins. We don't have to be like this poor man you know, on, on, on Channel News Asia who was sharing about how he has to atone for his sins over and over and over again. Because it's a, it's a burden and a weight that is too heavy to bear. Now in 1 John chapter 1, it says, We claim to be without sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. See, we must take God at his promises, and realize that we don't have to always have this burden of sin on us. There are people in our church who are no longer here because they've done something wrong, or they felt that they've let someone down so much so, that they feel that God cannot forgive them. And somehow they need to do something to add to the atonement that Jesus has given them. And that makes them really miserable. But the cross of Jesus Christ promises us that no matter what we have done, no matter how we have disappointed God, God can forgive us if we confess our sins. Now, I remember how in my office, as an, I was an accountant many years ago, there was a Christian man and we were just talking at lunch and I asked him, what, you know, what is his favorite verse in the Bible? And he said, oh, 1 Peter 1.15. And 1 Peter 1.15 says, be holy because I am holy. I think it's a great verse. But this Christian young man actually was probably the most miserable Christian I've ever met in my whole life. Because his whole life was striving to be 
really holy. And I think that's commendable to be holy, but it was a burden on him. You know, I, I didn't really like having too many lunches with him because every time I went with lunch with him, I felt like he was judging me. Right? You know, oh, you're not measuring up, you're not measuring up. His whole Christian life was all about doing things, proving himself to, to, to himself, proving himself to God. But there was no grace in his Christian life, no forgiveness. See, Jesus says in um, Luke chapter 18, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He did not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Now, if we look at this passage, this is the danger for us as middle class, relatively respectable people. The temptation that we think that somehow we are good enough to come before God and we are better than others. But in Jesus' eyes, whether you are the most hard-working righteous person or whether you are the most sinful person, you are still a sinner and you need God's grace. One of the things that I remember from my previous church was how the pastor there uh, used to say that the most... He used to ask this, actually he used this illustration several times so I can remember it. He asked this question, he said, who are the people who sing Amazing Grace the best? Who are the people who sing the song Amazing Grace the best? And he would say that the people who sing Amazing Grace the best are when he went to Helping Hand to see the extra addicts sing Amazing Grace. Because they really understood in their heart uh, what it meant to receive God's grace because they really saw themselves as sinners before God. But conversely, the ones who sing Amazing Grace the worst are those who feel that they actually don't have that much to be forgiven. The respectable people, they are the ones who sing Amazing Grace the worst because they don't feel that they really need God's grace. But actually, all of us need God's grace. Without grace, we become miserable because we are trying and trying and trying, but we never receive God's assurance of His grace. So what do we have to do to receive that grace and be joyful? It's like that movie Frozen, right? We have to let it go. Okay, we have to let it go. And how do we let it go? We let it go because the blood of Jesus Christ, whenever we sin, we must take it and apply it liberally in ourselves and know that we have received forgiveness. That's how we take away the the, the heavy yoke of trying but failing. To know the grace of God and the blood of Jesus. That's how we are joyful. Now coming to the other issue, which is Christians cannot be happy all the time. The reality is, as Christians, we will face disappointment, difficulty, hardship, sickness, loneliness, 
the loss of relationships, betrayal, many things. We live in a fallen world. And it's, it's unreality to be happy all the time. I remember during my uh, holiday in March, I, I signed up for a course and uh, I had this uh, to do pedal boarding, right? Anyway, so I met the instructor and and when I was talking to the instructor, I realized that uh, this person was going to a prosperity gospel church. So, so before the lesson, I tried to change this person's mind and we ended up talking for one hour before the lesson started. And this person said that actually they were thinking of leaving their church. And the reason was because apparently from the church they came from, their Bible study leader had died in a car accident. And the, uh, it was a couple who had died in a car accident. But yet, when they went to church the following week, the church told them that God still wanted to bless them, God still wanted them to be happy. But the question was, how can I be happy when my Bible study leader just passed away in a car accident? It's very difficult, and it's very unreal. And I think that the Bible doesn't promise us that we will have no problems in life, and that we will have a bit of roses, and life will be full of joy and blessing as a result after we become Christians. So how then do we face hardships? Do we then despair? Do we then become miserable? Do we, do we give up? What does the Bible tell us about how we should feel even within hardship? Well, I think that the Bible actually does say that we can, to a certain degree, rejoice even through hardship. So the first solution, I believe, is to focus on the future. That's what the Bible tells us to do. So if you look here, in Matthew chapter 5, I've got a few passages for us to look at here. It says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before me. Rejoice and be glad, it says. Okay, let's move on to 1 Peter chapter 1, which we read before. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has, in His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And lastly, in Romans chapter 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So what is the Bible's answer to difficult circumstances? 
It is to look forward to the future. Not to next week or to next year or the year later, but to the eternal permanent future for which we will inhabit. You notice in each of these passages, people are going through, the church is going through difficult circumstances, but people are told to be rejoicing and be glad because it it actually looks forward to the treasure of heaven, the perfection of our faith, the praise, glory and honor when Jesus is revealed, the redemption of our bodies. So the pain that we suffer today is not permanent and neither is it meaningless. The pain that we suffer today actually has a goal and end to it and that is eternity in heaven with God, the glory, perfection and redemption of our bodies. And the Bible gives two pictures here which sort of give us a picture of how we can endure when we are in pain and suffering. First of all, it compares our pain and suffering to that of childbirth. Uh, I mean, apart from modern medicine, you can't have a baby without pain. Right? It just says you need to go through that pain in order to get to the end, which is a child, a baby. And when you view it retrospectively after you have the child, then it seems like the childbirth process, even though it was really painful and I haven't gone through it myself, was bearable, was worth it. Uh, I mean, even for myself, after I had the, my first child, my, my wife was in great pain and like we're not sure whether we really want to go through this again, but then you end up having another one right, within a year. And that's the same way that our pain and suffering in this world is compared to, that we can still rejoice and be glad because it is a process by which something good is going to come out from that we are going to end up in heaven in eternity. And when we look back, the pain and suffering will seem like a very short, temporary suffering. Another picture which is compared to is that of the refining of gold. So gold is the most precious metal, but yet even though it's refined by fire, it says that when Jesus Christ comes, gold itself will be perishable. But our faith will be greater than gold because our faith will sustain even when Jesus comes. And what it's saying is that when we go through suffering, the answer is not to doubt, but to, to actually see it as a refining of our faith because when we suffer, it helps us to look forward to when we will not suffer in heaven and when we receive the glory from God. So I think when we go through our present suffering, how can we rejoice? How can we be glad? It's by looking at the context of our suffering and seeing the future, focusing on the future and not on the the present. It's just like when a mother right, is pregnant, she doesn't see it as a permanent situation, but it sees it as as a temporary thing, which is the process of getting a baby. I mean, I know of some of you who have suffered a lot during pregnancy, you know, the morning sickness and the vomiting, the nausea, and you can't eat this and that. But you still you still suffer through it because the point is there is there is a process by which we are arriving to another point, a better point, a permanent point. So that's the first thing that the Bible tells us. When we suffer We can rejoice and be glad because we are looking forward to the future, an eternal future prepared for us. 
The second thing is, when we suffer, we are to be thankful. Not thankful for the suffering, but thankful for what we have as Christians and what we are looking forward to as Christians. So in our prayer meeting, the last prayer meeting, so I'd like to encourage you to come to the prayer meetings because you learn lots of interesting things and very helpful and encouraging things. And um, last prayer meeting, we prayed for the country of Eritrea. Eritrea is uh, at the northern part of Africa, okay, um, and it's uh, bordered by Ethiopia and Sudan. And, and Eritrea, if you Google it, is called the North Korea of Africa. It is the most oppressive country in the world. It is the refugee capital of the world. There are more people coming out of Eritrea as refugees than any other country in the world. Now, there are many, many Christians in Eritrea who suffer terrible, terrible persecution. So we read of this lady who was locked up in these uh, shipping containers, and they basically lock, up, lock you up in this shipping container for a long time in the, in the heat of the day. Can you imagine how hot it must be? And um, she was taken out once in a while and beaten up and then thrown back into the shipping container. And apparently, next slide, uh, what they do is they want you to renounce your Christian faith, and if you renounce your Christian faith, then they will stop the punishment and you no longer have to go into the shipping container. But yeah, when we were in the prayer meeting, we heard of this woman who refused to give up her faith in Jesus. And the reason was because every day, even though she was locked up in the shipping container, in the boiling heat of the day, she thanked God. Every day she thanked God. But what was there to thank God for? She had no possessions, she had no job, she had no career, no money. She just was in the shipping container, but she was able to thank God for, for what they couldn't take away, which was Jesus Christ, forgiveness, salvation, eternal life. I always remember uh, what it said in that prayer video last week. Uh, no, last week, last month. It said, if tomorrow all you had is what you gave thanks for today, what would you have? And I thought that was such a profound thing, right? It still stuck with me today. If tomorrow all you had was what you gave thanks for today, what would you have? And I was thinking, it was a bit of a rebuke to me, isn't it? Because how little I gave thanks for today to God. If, if tomorrow all you had is what you gave thanks for today, I would have very little, I realized, because I was so short of thankfulness in my life. But this woman was very thankful. She was always thanking God for what God had given her in Jesus and her future in heaven. And I think this is the principle that we learn of in Philippians chapter 4. Because it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now for those of us who studied Philippians before, these words are not 
trivial words because the Philippian Christians were being put in prison just like this woman in Eritrea. But yet, Paul was telling them, rejoice in the Lord always, rejoice. But how to rejoice when you're being put in prison? Because the Lord is near. And even as you are praying, you should pray with thanksgiving. And as you pray with thanksgiving, the peace of God which transcends all understanding or guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, if your focus is in the Lord and your thanksgiving is in Jesus, you can still rejoice and Jesus will still guard your hearts and your minds because God's peace is in Jesus. You see, ultimately, part of our problem that we cannot rejoice in suffering and difficulty is because we lack thanksgiving. We lack thanksgiving to thank God for what we have in Jesus and the future which awaits us because we are in the Lord. So I'd like for us to reflect on that. If tomorrow all you had today was what you gave thanks for today, then what would you have? Well, if you're not a very thanksgiving person, then it is hard to be joyful because you're not giving thanks to God for what you have. The last point that uh, I think helps us to find joy and gladness even in our suffering is to talk to yourself, not listen to yourself. And sometimes we need to have doctrine and not prayer. Now what do I mean? To talk to yourself, not listen to yourself. Uh, okay, I got this idea from the book that I read and I think it's very helpful and I, and I re- reflect on what's, what my reaction is in the past to suffering. I can see what this person is saying. You know, I remember when I was very young as a Christian, uh, within one year of being a Christian, I I had these really terrible, terrible stomach pains. And I just started my job and, uh, and my, my, my new employees were thinking that I was a terrible employee and just skipping work and giving excuses. And uh, I found out that I had some stomach ulcers and, uh, for the rest of the year, I had stomach pain. So, you know, I was missing work. Then when I was at work, I was in pain and I wasn't enjoying work. And I'd just become a Christian the year before and I was asking God, no, God, why are you doing this to me, right? I've become a Christian now, why are you punishing me like this? And I kept praying to God over and over again to take away the pain. But sometimes, you need to stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. See, when you are listening to yourself, you keep listening to yourself, doubting God, right? Why is God doing this to me? Why is God making me suffer? Why is God putting me through this? Maybe God doesn't love me at all. You know, what's the point of all this stuff? Maybe I've done something wrong. But when we start talking to ourselves, we need to tell ourselves of the promises of God. We need to read the Bible back to ourselves and talk to ourselves. And that's what the psalmist did. Remember we read the the psalm? 42, actually no, Daniel read Psalm 42 for us. But if you look at the psalmist, it's almost like his doubts are talking to him, then he starts talking back to himself. Why are you so downcast, my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you, from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mirza. Verse 10. My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, and saying to me all day long, Where is your God? 
Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. See, here is uh, the psalmist, and his, he's listening to himself, listening to all the doubts. And all those doubts make him downcast, disturbed. Even his, his bones are in mortal agony. But he begins to talk back to himself. Remember God. Put your hope in God. Remember God as the Savior and as God. See, many times we allow our doubts and our fears to keep feeding on themselves and we just start doubting God and feeling sorry for ourselves and miserable. But the answer is, when you go back to God's Word and you see talking back to yourself of the promises of God and what Jesus has done for you and who you are and where you are going, then you are able to come back stronger in your faith and to rejoice in God. And I think that's why sometimes, paradoxically, what's needed is not more prayer, but more doctrine. Right? Because I remember when I was sick, I kept praying, and I'm sure you, you who have suffered do the same thing. You keep praying, you know, dear God, take this pain away from me. Take this suffering away from me. God, take this suffering away from me. Take this pain away from me. Or take this hardship away from me. But sometimes, what's required is not more prayer, but more doctrine. More going back to the Bible to understand what is happening. Because it allows us then to see that maybe maybe God is using this suffering, this hardship, and He's not willing to take it away, but He's actually using this to help you look forward in a stronger faith to the eternal future that you have. To remind you of God and of Jesus and who we are. I remember a few weeks ago I was sharing about that book uh, by that pastor who passed away in England, uh, Mark Ashton. And when he was diagnosed with cancer, he said that it really helped him to get ready for heaven. Because when he knew he was definitely going to die, and there was, he was not going to get any better, and he said one of the problems with having cancer is, he says, when you wake up, you feel worse, and you know it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. It actually sharpens your faith because it helps you to look forward to heaven and to make your faith in Jesus even stronger. So his prayer to God wasn't always, God, make me better. But he actually got got back to the Bible to make his faith even stronger so that he looked forward to heaven and to know the certainty of what he had because he was in Jesus. So I think that as we look at these Bible passages, it is a, a, a something that we can hold on to, rejoicing, gladness, even when we do suffer. But how we do that is to focus on the future, to be thankful for what we have in Jesus Christ right now, and most importantly, to come back to God's Word and to keep repeating God's words and promises to us rather than listening to our doubts or just praying over and over again that God will take away this suffering. In conclusion, I do think as Christians we are to be joyful, but we're not to be happy, clappy, you know, artificial, joyful people. Because you can't be joyful that way, right? If I came up to you today and just said, be happy, 
Well, the only thing you could do is maybe smile bigger, but you can't actually be happier in your heart. But what the Bible says is not to focus on happiness, chase happiness and make happiness your goal, but rather your goal should be focusing on Jesus, focusing with thankfulness on what God has done, focusing on the future. And then when you have all those things, when you know the splendor of what you have, then joy and happiness and gladness follow after that. So several years ago, we were at the church camp, and uh, I can't remember how long ago it was, and we were watching these uh, videos in between the break times. I'm sure some of you at the church camp remember. And we were showing all these videos from this uh, dispatches from the front about all these Christians and missionaries from all these different parts of the world. And some of these uh, videos were very, very, um, I guess, emotionally impactful, I think. I remember one particular video, and I think that uh, it was from a country in the Middle East of a, of a secret Bible study meeting. And I remember they were, they were sitting around a small room. It was quite dingy. They were all drinking their cups of tea. And these were all secret believers in this Middle East country. And they, they, there was this man, he looked like a very ordinary man who was sharing how he had become a Christian and how his wife had left him. He, his, his, his family had disowned him. He once had a high paying job and now he was like some, low-paying, menial person, right? But what struck me was how happy he was, how joyful he was that he was a Christian. And how how joyful he was that he could come to Bible study. And I thought, well, it's really amazing because, you know, here was a person, his wife had left him, his family had disowned him, he had no career to speak of, and he's really happy to come to Bible study in this place. And I think that what he had was a real appreciation, a real grasp of what he had in Jesus Christ. A real grasp of where he was going, who he was, who his, who his God was. And that allowed him, through that suffering and difficulty, to be joyful. And I think that that is the secret that the Bible is talking about, isn't it? To be able to rejoice and be glad, even in suffering and persecution, because you know that your treasure in heaven is going to be all make all this suffering seem like nothing at all. So I hope that as we go through this passage, if you have any more questions, come and speak to me. We shouldn't be miserable as Christians. We should rejoice. But rejoicing is not something we pursue, but something that comes as a result of knowing God and really appreciating, giving thanks for what we have in Jesus Christ and the future that awaits us. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you that your word tells us so clearly that the man received the kingdom of heaven with joy and that the news of Jesus is news of great joy. Dear Father, help us to to come back to your word and to know with certainty in our hearts and to see with great clarity how blessed we are to be saved in Jesus Christ. 
that right now we are your family, our future is secure, and that heaven will be infinitely better than this world. Dear Father, we pray that we may be people who focus on the future, who are thankful for what you've given us, who continue to come to your word to inform us of just how blessed we are, so that our lives will reflect joyfulness and gladness as it should, dear Father, so that indeed people will come through us to know of this, the greatness of the blessings you've given us in Jesus. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.